God, we come to you as our fortress, as our refuge, as our hiding place, O God. And we pray that even now as we gather together, even though we're scattered together, we are united together underneath your word and underneath our unity that we have in Jesus. We pray, O God, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would fill us again with hope and with assurance of your love, that you would give us strength in this time because we've taken time to hear from you, that you'd give us strength to go out into our weeks with hearts that are willing to engage and serve and love and trust you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Colossians chapter 1. We are still in Colossians 1, and over the next couple weeks, we're actually going to be talking together about the cross of Christ. And I was thinking about this, uh, you know, and I was thinking a couple years back, we invited some friends of ours to church, and these were very, very unchurched friends. Uh, one of them was a secular Jewish guy, and he grew up, he, he, had, he, had, he had virtually never been to church, had almost no understanding of Christianity. And so he came and he worshiped together with us. This was actually here at our church at Christ Church. And after the service, I pulled him aside and said, hey, um, so what did you think? And he said, you know, he goes, he says, I really loved, you know, the, the music was great. And uh, he says, the, the talk you gave, that was, that was pretty good. He says, but the, the thing that I just don't like, the thing that I just, I just can't get is, is all this emphasis on the bloody cross. He said, you know, I, I think if you guys could kind of modernize Christianity, you could extract the bloody cross. He says, I, I think it could, you could have a really good thing going for you, you know, and um, but the thing that he didn't like was the bloody cross. And I appreciated my friend's honesty, and I, I appreciated it because it reminded me that, you know, we as followers of Jesus believe some very strange things. And there are ideas that we sing about and talk about and uh, preach about that very often we are so used to these ideas, you almost grow callous to just how strange and how foreign they would be to people who are very much outside of the church. And certainly all of our talk in our churches about the blood of Christ is one of those subjects. And so just think for a minute about the songs we sing, like there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all of their guilty stains blood drawn from veins. And if you're plunged in that flood, you lose your guilty stains. And if you're brand new, you might think that is strange. That's odd. Who are these people? What do they believe anyway? Or there is power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the lamb. And what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. And so certainly blood is one of these topics, it's, it's one of these things that we talk about that for people who are, who are outside, it's strange, it's foreign. And you know, sometimes there, there are things that Christians say and do, uh, subjects we broach and talk about that uh, kind of make us sound weird or strange. And sometimes it's because we are being weird and strange. But you know, this topic is not... Uh, in spite of Jesus and his beauty, the reason why we talk about the blood is because of Jesus. Jesus actually talked a lot about the blood. On the very last night before he was crucified, he gave a practice to a church. And in this practice, we would regularly participate in what he said was his broken body and his shed blood. And it was Dr. King who said it takes 
It requires penetrating eyes to see God in such a setting. And this discussion about the blood and all that it means, this is something that I want us to talk together about today. And I want us to think, I want us to, to, to dive into God's word and to kind of explore this topic of what are, what are we even talking about when we talk about the blood of Jesus? And if you're brand new to Christianity, I'm so glad you are uh, listening in, you're tuned in with us today, because here we're kind of going to enter into the very heart of Christianity. We're going to see what Christianity at its very essence is all about. And I just want to draw your attention in the text of Colossians to just one phrase today, and it's this, it says this, for in him, it's speaking of Christ, for in Christ all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now again, think about how comprehensive the scope of this vision is. Here he is literally talking about the healing of the cosmos, the healing of all things in heaven and on earth. Think about all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of the heartache, all of the hurt, all of the estrangement, all of the ways in which you and I have been wounded in this world. And he says all of it, all of it is, is being healed. And look at how it's being healed. He says, God is making peace. He is bringing healing by the blood of his cross. And so what he's claiming here is that the very agent in the redemption and the reconciliation of the cosmos is the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross. But what do we mean when we're talking about the blood that he shed on the cross? Well, on one level, he's talking here about an event in history. Jesus Christ was strung up on a Roman cross. He was given this pathetic, this this awful slave's death where he was hung up naked after being brutalized and violently put on this tree through nails pierced through his hands and his feet. And he died the death of how many, many, many people died in the ancient Roman Empire. It was through crucifixion. And on the cross, he certainly shed blood. And so on the one level, he's talking here about the event of the crucifixion. But I think he's doing something more when he's talking about the blood of his cross. You see, when you actually read through the Gospels, the four biographers of Jesus, they don't really highlight the shedding of Jesus' blood very much in their recounting of the crucifixion. And certainly Jesus did shed blood as he died on the cross. But I think what he's doing is he's doing something more. He's helping us understand the meaning of the event of the crucifixion by connecting it with shed blood. You see, the idea of blood being shed was huge in the ancient Jewish imagination. And you could almost put it like this. Uh, the, the phrase, the blood, is almost like a hyperlink that if you press on it, it opens up behind it a whole world and it takes you somewhere else that helps you understand the meaning and the significance of the cross. And I want to suggest to you that the place where it should take us is back to the Old Testament book of, Levit of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is an ancient manual on animal sacrifice, essentially. And so it's probably where a lot of you have spent a lot of time this last week, and you've been thinking, man, uh, things are a mess right now around us, and we need some instruction on how to do animal sacrifice. No, nobody was thinking that this last week. But the book of, Levit of Leviticus is, it's a very strange, it's a very foreign book for many of us. You know, it opens with this extensive instruction on how to offer five different kinds of sacrifices. There's the burnt 
offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. And then to add to that, there's verse after verse with what to do with the fat of the animal you're sacrificing, and then the loins of said animal, and then the long lobe of the liver of that same animal, and the blood, and there's lots and lots of blood, and uh, blood gets sprinkled on the priests, and it gets sprinkled on the instruments of the temple, and it gets sprinkled on the people, and it's poured out on the altar, and it's offered up to God. And if you're kind of like jumping into this strange ancient book of animal sacrifice, you think, what is the deal? This sounds so primitive so regressive. What's the deal with, you know, God revealing himself through this Old Testament sacrificial system? And if your response primarily is to think about this as kind of a regressive, you know, primitive book, I just want to challenge you on something. I want to challenge you that maybe you have an unexamined assumption of the superiority of your own cultural moments. Uh, C.S. Lewis once quipped that we modern people uh, tend to commit the, the crime of chronological snobbery, which is to say we tend to think that where we have gotten to in our place in history and how we think and how we live and how we practice is superior to all other peoples and cultures throughout the history of the human race. But I want you to think for a moment about the practice of Israelite animal sacrifice by first thinking about the amount of animals that are sacrificed in our own nation every year. Or I shouldn't say sacrificed. Think with me for the amount of animals that are slaughtered in our nation every year. Every year, hundred or there are 9 billion animals in the United States slaughtered. 160 million are dropped off at slaughterhouses every day, and 99% of those animals that are dropped off at slaughterhouses have been raised in factory farms that look something like this, or uh, like this, or like this. And so what we tend to do when we go out and slaughter our animals is we keep them out of view, and we treat our animals not like they are living, sentient creatures, but rather like they're simply hunks of meat that exist for our consumption. And we treat them accordingly. But in ancient Israel, that was not how they viewed things. In ancient Israel, they were allowed to eat meat. They were allowed to sacrifice animals. Uh, but when they sacrificed the animals, they would do so in the context of eating those same animals that were sacrificed. In fact, the very book of Deuteronomy, this whole book of animal sacrifices, opens up by saying when you go to draw near to God with your sacrifices, and then when you would go and offer your sacrifice, very often the meat of the sacrifice would go back to the person who offered, and they would, as it were, eat with God in the presence of God, this great meal that was sacrificed. And, you know, you, you look back at the whole kind of like scope of, of the book of Leviticus, and it gives all these rules for how to treat animals and the kind of animals you can consume. Uh, there was a very limited amount of animals that the Israelites were allowed to eat. And then even the ones that they were allowed to eat, there was very specified ways in which those animals were to be killed so that they would be 
killed in a way that was painless. And so these animals that were raised not in factory farms, but in families and on little family farms were brought to the temple and they were killed in a very humane way that would not cause pain to the animal. And then the animal was eaten in the presence of God. But here was the thing is you couldn't partake of the blood of the animal. The blood represented its life. And so the blood would have to be poured out to God as if God was saying to the people of Israel, look, uh, it is okay to satisfy your need for protein, your appetite for protein with these animals, but you may not exert your power over their life. Their life ultimately belongs to me. And if you take the life of that animal, it belongs to me. There was something very sacred about this whole practice of animal sacrifice that in many ways is much more humane than how we think about kind of slaughtering animals in our own day and age. But let's go back now to blood. And let's talk a little bit about the blood and how throughout the book of Deuteronomy or throughout the book of Leviticus, there's all this talk about blood and this theology of blood stands behind what happens to Jesus on the cross at Calvary and the blood he sheds. And there's three things that the blood does according to the book of Leviticus, three things about the blood that we learn there that help us understand the cross. And the first thing is this, is that the blood represented symbolically the life of the animal. And listen to how the author puts it in Leviticus 17. He says, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood. And so you get the sense that this is a really important thing to God. It is different than the surrounding pagan nations. As far as we know, uh, there were not other nations that put this this, uh, absolute prohibition on consuming blood, but the Israelites did. It was one of the things that separated them from the surrounding nations. And notice the rationale for not eating the blood. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. In other words, the blood represents its life of this animal. And so God says, ultimately, the life of that animal belongs to me. But when they would go and offer a sacrifice, the life would be shed. The life would be drawn out of that animal. Why would that happen? Well, it was the principle of substitution. You see, the person who sinned against God, who did something to break fellowship with God and break you know, something down in God's world, they were guilty before God's face and they had to go and do something about their sin, about their guilt. And they would bring this animal as if to say, this animal and its life is being, and its life that's poured out is a substitute for me. So my life doesn't have to be poured out. And so they would go and they would offer this animal as a substitute in their place and in their stead as a symbol of saying, look, Um, I deserve to die for the way in which I have committed so much wrong in God's world and in the community and to my family members, but this animal will give up its life in my place. And the second thing that we learn about this blood sacrifice, not only did the life of the animal, was it represented by the blood, but secondly, what we see is that the blood would then make atonement for uh, the, the, the person who had sinned. Now, there's my little guy. He's a nice little guy, isn't he? 
Um, I know you all like him. Um, I, was, I figured, you know, with all the smoke that's going on right now, you needed a little artwork. And so I worked on uh, this all day long to give you something that would just, you know, take your mind off of what's going on outside of your windows right now. So the blood, according to Leviticus, would actually make atonement. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word atonement simply means to, uh, you could pull it apart it, 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 to, to mean at one meant In other words, two people who had been divided, who had had a broken relationship, would be brought at one together again. In other words, the relationship would be restored. Atonement is all about reconciliation and the healing of a broken relationship. And the person would go to God and offer this sacrifice in order for his relationship with God to be restored again and to be healed again. And so the, the, the book of Leviticus, again, it puts it like this. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And he says, and I have given it for you on the altar. Now just pause there. He says, I have given it to you. And here, the, the, the Israelite sacrificial system was standing out from all of the other nations around them. You know, the surrounding nations in their context, you know, they thought the gods were angry and were crazy. And so, you know, if, uh, if, if you know, there were fires all over the place and there was a plague surrounding the community and the society, if uh, there was economic collapse, if, you're, if there was famine in the land, if your crops were failing, if there was going to be a volcano erupting, it must be because you had done something wrong and you got the gods angry with you. And so you had to do something quick in order to uh, make it up to the God. And so you would, you know, throw them animals and in some, you know, horrific cases, they would, they would cast in uh, people as well. They would offer a, a human sacrifice in order to appease the anger of the gods. But it was their way of trying to get the gods, you know, off their back. But notice God actually provides the sacrificial system to Israel as a gift For them, he says, I have given it for you. And I've given you specifically this blood from this animal. You get to eat the meat, but you take the blood and you offer that as a as a as a sacrifice on the altar. Why? To make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. He says it is the blood that actually will restore this broken relationship that we have. In other words, when this animal dies in your place, when in place of you dying, the animal gives its light, it actually brings a reconciled relationship between you and God. And it brings reconciliation also to the relationships in the community by offering up this animal. But not only would the animal be offered to make atonement, the animal would also be offered in order to make cleansing or the blood would, would bring cleansing. And uh, he puts it like this in Leviticus chapter 16. He says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And he goes on. 
and he, and then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood from the bowl and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of it with his fingertips seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of all Israel. So do you see what he's saying here? Uh, this is different because I think a lot of us, you know, when we, when we have, you know, kind of in our, in our minds that we learned in Sunday school and maybe from church growing up as we, we learn about the sacrifice that is made for the sinner in order to atone for our sins and to bring our relationship right back with God. But here he says the blood doesn't only atone for uh, the sinner. The blood actually has this cleansing and this purifying property. And again, we have to get out of our own kind of like Western post-enlightenment worldviews, and we have to kind of like transport ourselves back into the ancient mindset of Israel. And in their mindset, blood was not something that put a stain on you. If, if I bleed on my white shirt, it will stain me. Rather, the blood, because the life of the animal was in the blood and the, the animal had given its life for you, and this blood actually could cleanse and it could purify the things that by your own uncleanness you had defiled. And so in the, in the nation of Israel, people, you know, the, the, this was a broken, messed up people, and they were walking around very holy things that belonged to God, the tabernacle and the altar and all of the instruments within the temple. And as they walked around those things, their uncleanness would, would, would dirty the place up. And so the blood would be sprinkled on it in order to cleanse it, to say, look, uh, the power of this sacrificing goat the blood that was given in your place has the power to cleanse uh, all of the things that you have defiled with your own uncleanness. And so are you seeing what Leviticus is teaching us about the blood? The blood is symbolic of the life of the animal. And the blood that is the, the life of this animal when it's sacrificed in your stead and in your place it, it actually brings healing in your broken relationship with God. And then that same blood, when it's sprinkled all around in the instruments of the tabernacle, he, he says that blood actually cleanses and purifies uh, those instruments in the tabernacle. Now you say, well, what on earth does this teach us about Jesus? And what are we supposed to learn from this You know, as we inhabit uh, America in the 21st century? And I think that this ancient text is teaching us two things that, that are really important. Number one, it's teaching us that sin must be taken seriously. Sin must be taken seriously. I think the reality is for many of us is that we get so immersed in our old ways of being with each other that we fail to see just how egregious and how painful many of our behaviors really are and how they have to be dealt with. You know, it was uh, years ago that I was uh, the assistant to the youth pastor. That was my first church job. It was not the uh, youth assistant. I was the assistant to the youth pastor. And uh, it was something like the assistant to the regional manager. But we used to take these, these, these trips down to Mexico every year with our youth group. And uh, since I was the assistant to the regional manager, I was always get the worst jobs uh, that kids were given. You know, I, I would go along with, you know, the guys who would do the worst jobs. Well, one year we went down there and one of the jobs that was given out was to clean out the septic tank in, you know, this, uh, it was a little deaf orphanage down in Mexico. 
And the septic tank was not really a tank, it was a big ditch underneath an outhouse. And so our job, or this was what we were offered, we said, hey, they said, look, we need somebody to do this, and we're gonna give you some shovels, and we're gonna give you some latex gloves, and we're gonna give you some little face masks, and you're gonna go and shovel out the septic tank. And uh, who wants to volunteer for this? And of course, none of the kids volunteered. And so I raised my hand because I was a dutiful, you know, the servant of all, you know, the assistant to the youth pastor. And then there was another kid who was a foreign exchange student actually from Costa Rica, and he didn't have very good English, and he didn't know what was being asked, and so he raised his hand. And so the two of us went, and then the youth pastor actually joined us as well. And so we started shoveling out the stuff that was inside this ditch. And... Um, we go on, and, and at first, when I walked up to the thing, it's like the stench of this thing hit me in the face, and it was so bad. It's like my stomach turned. I thought I was going to pass out and fall into the ditch, and then I thought that would be the end of me. I'd be dead in this ditch of, you know, sludge. And, um, and, but, but the strangest thing happened. The more I went on digging the stuff out, as hour by hour by hour went by, I got desensitized to the smell and I kind of got used to it. And then around noon, the chow bell rang and you can imagine how hungry we all were, you know, after digging this stuff out. And so me and the youth pastor and the, the foreign exchange student, we start walking down to the chow hall and we're kind of, you know, we take it off our latex gloves and our masks and everything. We're walking down there and all of a sudden we, we see the rest of the youth group down there and they look at us and they're just horrified and they just have this terrible look on their face. And they're like, oh, it stinks, it stinks. And we said, what stinks, what stinks? They said, it's you, you stink, you know? And... Uh, but we had been immersed in the stuff for long enough that we had been desensitized to it. And we didn't see that if we were actually gonna go eat a meal at the chow hall, we had to first be cleansed. And you know, that's a parable of our own lives. You know, there are ways in which some of you husbands talk to your wives and it is painful and it's hurtful and you are so used to it, you don't even recognize it. There is anger that you have in ways that you treat your children. You wouldn't treat a stranger that you didn't even like the way you treat your kids sometimes, but you become so desensitized to it. There are ways in which you handle your money and your resources, you have so much and relative to the history of the world, relative to the rest of the world, you're rich and you have an abundance and yet you live with a closed fist and you don't share your resources and you're selfish with your needs, when people are dying for hunger and you have just gotten desensitized to it. You've gotten used to it. And there are ways in which you treat neighbors and people on the street and, and people around you, you ignore them or you insult them or you look down on them or you hold biases and prejudices against them and you have gotten so used to it, you don't even recognize just how ugly it is. In fact, when people come up to you and confront you on something, you deny it or you excuse it or you do something because you've gotten so used to it, you're fine. But what the sacrificial system in the nation of Israel did is it said over and over again, you are not fine. You are a mess. And there are things that you do that are destructive and that are costly. They, they cost your family something. They cost your marriage something. They cost your relationships something. They cost the people at the office something. They, they cost your roommates something. Because of how you're being, it's costly. And so when you go and you offered up this costly animal and it's, it gave its life in your head, your stead, it was a symbolic, ritualized, embodied way of saying, I am, I am sinful, I'm a broken sinner, and what I do is serious, and it needs to be taken seriously. 
And so number one, Leviticus, the whole sacrificial system, all the blood, it was saying, look, sin must be taken seriously. Stop being in denial. Stop excusing your sin. Stop all of your self-justifications. Because, listen, the things you do, oftentimes the things you say, what you entertain in your mind, the places you allow your imagination to go, that stuff can be so, the seeds of destruction that make things just a mess are embedded within your actions and they are serious. And the very seeds that are in your own heart right now, the sinful seeds, they're the same seeds that have been in the seeds of Nazi Germany. They have been in the seeds of Pol Pot and the killing fields in Cambodia. They have been in in the hearts of of the prison guards in the Russian gulags. And, And this is the kind of stuff that can surface in our own hearts and it can be so destructive. And this practice was saying, look, sin needs to be taken seriously and dealt with. And so number one, the blood teaches us that sin must be taken seriously. But secondly, the blood shed on these animals that was providing atonement through the sacrificial system. Number two, it taught us, it teaches us about the principle of substitution. It teaches us this principle that even though you have made a mess of things, there is a way whereby you don't always have to live under the weight and the guilt and the shame. You don't have to be imprisoned by your past and by your failures and all the things you've done wrong and the stuff you're ashamed of and the stuff you hope nobody could ever find out about. You don't have to live in the grip of that anymore. You can actually be released from that because those sins can actually be taken and they can be dealt with. They can be taken seriously, but they can be taken over by somebody else. In fact, In the sacrificial system, there was this unusual practice that the priest would have where they would take one of these goats on the Day of Atonement and the priest would actually lay his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess over the goat all of the sins of Israel. And then the goat would be released off into the wilderness as if to say the goat is taking away your sins. You can be cleansed, you can be purified, you can be washed, but through, through the, the lamb that is, or through the goat that, that goes off into the wilderness through someone else. And it teaches us this principle that, listen, it is true that in God there is forgiveness and there is release and there is healing and there is reconciliation and restoration. But somebody has to bear the weight of those sins. And it's true in our own relationships, you know, if you deeply wound and betray your roommate or your parents or your spouse, there's there's two things that can happen. Either they can bear the weight of that sin or you can bear it. Either, Either they can make you pay for what you've done or you can allow them to absorb the wrong and move towards you with forgiveness and healing. And... This is the principle of substitution. Somebody else bears your wrong so that you can be forgiven and healed. And here is what Colossians 1 is declaring to us loud and clear. Here's the good news of Colossians 1, is that in the cross of Jesus, in the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, God was actually at work to bring reconciliation and healing between our broken relationship with God 
God was taking sin seriously. He was saying, look, sin has to be dealt with. It cannot be ignored. It needs to be dealt with, and it's dealt with through my cross. I will enter into this world. I will bear your sin and shame. And through my own bearing of your wrongs, through me dying in your place, through my life being poured out so that yours doesn't have to be, you can be restored and you can be cleansed. And not just you, but my work is so powerful because in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When Christ died on the cross, his work was strong enough to bring about the reconciliation and the healing and the cleansing of all creation. That's why it says, for in him all things have been reconciled and healed through the blood of his cross. And that is very, very good news. And it's good news that's not just true for all of creation, but it's true for all of those who will receive this work of Christ as a free gift that we receive. And he puts it like this. He says, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God has acted in Christ to cleanse and to heal and to forgive and to break all of sin's hold on your life and to bring a restored relationship with God. And so let's be a people that receives and rejoices in that incredibly rich and gracious gift from God that has been given for the life and the healing of all creation. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we just give you thanks and praise that you are not a God who turns a blind eye to all of the evil and the injustice in the world. You don't turn away from all of the ways in which we have harmed each other, we've harmed ourselves, we've harmed our neighbors and our kids and our siblings and our parents, God. You've not turned a blind eye to that, God. You have called sin, sin in all of its ugliness and you have dealt with it through your son Jesus on the cross. And you've given us this free gift that if we will receive it, we can experience healing and cleansing and we can have a restored relationship with you. God, enable us to enjoy this relationship with you. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.